John Lane. It speaks volumes for the army organization that, in so vast a movement of such masses, they know absolutely at any moment at what point on the road any unit can be found. We started with our line of march all rooted. The exact number of miles to be covered each day, the villages at which we were to halt, the watering places, the points for drawing forage, everything ordered and thought out. We moved like clockwork. There were no hitches, no breakdowns. Some of our poor old horses died. They'd been standing in the mud all the winter. It was pitiful to see them limping along, putting their last ounce of strength into dragging the guns. Their drivers, who had grown fond of them, were still more pitiful when they had to part with them. It's extraordinary how eager men are to give their love. They give it to their officers, to one another, to dumb animals. You wouldn't think that men whose business it is to kill could love so much. It has been splendid getting into clean country again. The signs of spring were everywhere. We saw women ploughing and little children doing men's work. Only the very old and very young are left. One realised how much France had suffered. It was tremendous fun after the same old trenches to be going to a new place. The new trenches are just as bad as the ones that we've left. Only they're different, and that makes for excitement. When you've been on a front for a certain time, you get to know every inch of it. It bores you to death. You get horribly fed up. You don't a bit mind going to something worse, if only you can get a sense of novelty. We stopped in all kinds of villages, by the way, and slept in anything, from chateau to stables. We were so weary that where we slept didn't matter much, so long as we got a shakedown and something to eat for breakfast. Each morning we rose at four, and usually didn't pull into our horse lines till the light was failing. Then the guns had to be parked, the parades carried out, the pickets posted, the guards mounted, and the billets of the men inspected. So it was usually ten before one rolled into his sleeping sack. By eight o'clock next morning the camp was empty, tidy as if we'd never been there. By nightfall, other campfires would be burning, surrounded by another crowd of transients. Hymn writers may well compare the instability of life with the passage of an army marching forward. Where we are now, we've not had time to build any dugouts. All our work is being put into the gun pits. When they are done, the men's quarters come next, and last of all, the officers. I have some old ground sheets spread across a trench, in the bottom of which I've unrolled my sleeping sack. It's oddly like a grave, especially in the dark when your hands touch the cold, damp walls. So long as it doesn't rain, I'm pretty comfy and haven't much to complain about. One gets used to anything. It's queer to reflect that there's scarcely a beggar in any city who isn't better housed. One can get accustomed to anything when the standards of privation are arbitrary. This new offensive fills us with excitement. We know that it's going to be costly. The shelling has already increased, proving that the Hun has his own ideas of what is planned. 
It makes one wonder how many of the masses which have marched in for the attack will march out. Will they die haphazard, blindly, at random? Or does someone know already the names of those who will lie silent before the month is out? One would like to ask God questions. There's an extraordinary suspense and secrecy in the air, an undercurrent of strained intensity. The men feel it. You see that by the way they work. They spare no labour in making their gun pits as shell-proof as possible. You hear them telling one another, it's going to be a hell of a strafe when it starts. The rumour is that behind us the cavalry are mustering, so it looks like Armageddon with a vengeance. It was here that your letter found me.